When we come to any passage of Scripture, but especially in one of Paul's letters, you know, there's always Paul's concerns, which are textually driven, and so there's, you know, all the work of, you know, Bible study associated with that. But then there's what we might call sort of the pastoral overtones or undertones of what's being said here. So uh, quickly, Paul's concerns are with the people we've talked about the whole time we've been studying 1 Corinthians, that is the super spiritual amongst the Corinthians, who in this case could not imagine the resurrection because they couldn't deal with the human body because they were sort of antibody, right? Are you tracking with me here? They're super spiritual, which makes them sort of antibody. And so they couldn't figure out how it is because uh, they were probably thinking more in terms of like resuscitation, you know, like you do in a hospital, you know, hit them with the paddles and they were dead, now they're alive, but they got that same body. So they just weren't getting their heads wrapped around how this thing works. And so what you just heard read to you this morning is Paul trying to give them an imagination and a rationale for how resurrection actually works. And I'll, I'll make some comments on that. But I think the pastoral concern the more sort of everyday ordinary human concern is, what happens to me when I die? What's it like? What's the process like? What's my, f to what will I first be conscious on the other side, right? Things like that. Th th those are the more human sort of pastoral concerns. And, and Paul, of course, would have been uh, happy to have talked about it on those terms. But we get a sense of it in the gospel reading that Joshua just read to us when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever has confidence in that, that I am the resurrection and the life, though that person die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and places their confidence or trust in or rely on, you know, clings to, believes in me, shall never die. And then Jesus asks the question, do you believe this? You know, can I just say that that is like fundamental to Christian spirituality? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And as you place your confidence in me and the life of God that I embody and demonstrate on this earth, as you place your confidence in that, you will never die. Now, this is fundamental to Paul's own faith. This business of never die means in you know, in Christian theology, it doesn't mean resuscitation. It means resurrection, which is a brand new category. There, there had never been a human category of resurrection, not on the streets of Jerusalem or Antioch or, right? I mean, the, the human beings did not think in those kinds of categories. So this is why, for millennia, resurrection has been a core apologetic you know, the word apologetic just simply means like a reasoned argument for something or a defense of it or a justification for a certain belief. And, and, and that's, that wasn't merely doctrinal. The, the notion that Jesus was actually a man, actually brutally beaten and crucified, he actually died. He didn't just pretend to die. He wasn't just asleep. He actually died. He was actually buried in a tomb. And lo and behold, three days later, he's not there. That he was resurrected. And then he began to appear to his first friends with a body. What the heck? But not like the body he had before. It was different. It, and then you get into all Paul's analogies that we just read. 
Well, it had some continuity with his old body, the way a seed does to a plant, you know. You get into all Paul's analogies there. So what Paul wants to say here to the first hearers of this, who are asking the question basically, show me how the resurrection works given the body and given our super spiritual misunderstandings of the body, you know, thinking that it's unimportant or at worst unspiritual, um, these super spiritual Christians in Corinth would have not had any imagination for how this body could have been reanimated after death. Again, it was just an unheard of idea. But again, though resurrection in Paul's day, and I would say in our day, even though I have not met anybody in a decade or more who said something like this to me, I'm taught if you could just prove to me the resurrection, I would consider becoming a Christian. Virtually no outsider thinks in those sort of classic apologetic senses anymore because they've got lots of barriers they've got to get over before they get to classic apologetics. Now, I don't mean to say that classic apologetics are out the door. Not at all. At some point, once somebody gets open to faith, then they're going to ask questions. Only now, instead of asking them cynically, they're going to ask them sincerely. Like, how does the resurrection work? Or how is it the Bible's authoritative? Can you tell me about the virgin birth? Right? So, so now they're going to be asking questions that are classic apologetical questions, but they're going to be asking them in order to come to faith and increase their faith, not to somehow hold it off. So the resurrection then is meant to give meaning to our lives now, not just be apologetics. So let's look at a couple of these thoughts. Obviously, we can't do this whole thing in 20 minutes. But a couple of thoughts that I think will just help us understand how the resurrection is meant to give meaning to our lives. First of all, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does, it, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so what Paul is beginning to help us see here is that yes, that's true, but we're gonna have new and different bodies. Please, this is really foundational, so try to catch this. We will have new and different bodies suited to eternity in the same way we had a physical body suited to this creation. Are you catching that? So God creates the world, a world that's suitable for human life. Then he creates human beings as the pinnacle of that and places them in an environment with an appropriate body that is suitable for their flourishing in that reality. And what Paul's arguing for is that though we will continue to be embodied people, we will have a different kind of body that is suited for this spiritual realm, for whatever eternity ends up being with all of its material and immaterial realities that we all would just be speculating about. And so what Paul wants to say is to these super spiritual Christians is that, hey, look, these flawed body of ours, they're actually loved by God and will redeemed by him. They're not anti-spiritual. We don't have redemption from our bodies. Did you catch that preposition? We don't have redemption from our bodies as if they're bad. We have the redemption of our bodies so that they're transformed. They're metamorphosized into a different kind of thing suitable for an eternal reality. That is to say, fitted for life in God's new world. And of course, then it would make sense that the corruptible, decaying material aspect of our bodies will be made non-corruptible, as Paul argues, undecaying, so that death no longer has any control. So you, you, we, there's lots of ways we could look at this in Paul's letters, but one of the most um, familiar ones would be 
Philippians 3.21, where Paul says, uh, Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul sees a precise one-to-one correlation between Jesus, who had a human body, then appeared to us in this crazily different sort of body, and Paul sees that God is going to do for the church the body of Christ for whom Christ is the head, what God did for the head, God is going to do for the body of Christ. And though this is outside of our current range of experience, he's trying to say to the Corinthians and outside of your current thinking about the material body, Paul's trying to say, but we have an example for a, of this in the resurrected Christ. And for Paul, it's precisely this resurrected Christ that is the foundation stone for his confident faith. In other words, the resurrection of Christ and having a new body is not just um, uh, an ideal or a concept. It's a concrete event in history. And what you pick up in Paul here is that can you not see then how this assures forgiveness and salvation and hope for the future? And the ethics of Jesus. See, Paul sees the resurrection as the the final zenith thing that proves that Jesus was right. Not just right in an argument, but right in his manner of being and right in the things he did and right in the things that he taught. And so for Paul, resurrection gets right to the character of God. That it displays God and what he's all about. So now I want to embark on a lovely word called an excursus. (laughs) Um, Excursus is just kind of an academic word for, uh, we're going to go down a rabbit trail here. (laughs) Uh, In a more academic work, it it like warns the reader, we're we're going to make a detailed argument here. And so, you know, hold where we've been going. So likely you notice that uh, I didn't say or write anything this week about the election. I didn't do it to you, the church. I didn't do it to the diocese. Our archbishop wrote something that I thought was adequate, and then we, uh, we sent that out. But I didn't make a comment for several reasons. One is, in the early days, there's nothing I could have said that could have cut through all the chatter. There's just no way. I just could not have cut through everything that was going on and been heard. Um, second of all, I don't have anything very interesting to say politically. Um, This election is going to be dissected, not only the votes, but why those votes were made. This will be dissected by our political, our professional political scientists for years to come. People will get PhDs, seriously, on what just happened. There will be hundreds of PhDs five, ten years from now on what just happened. So I don't have anything to say on that level. Thirdly, this is easily the most intelligent congregation I've ever pastored. And I don't need to tell you guys what to think. You're all very capable of thinking for yourself and that sort of thing. And so I don't want to do that now. But here's what I do want to do. I want to help us think, believe, and comport ourselves within the character of God. Those big sort of transcendent ideas are not meant to make us sort of otherworldly and of no earthly good. It's quite to the contrary. Transcendent ideas, like for Paul, the resurrection proves the character of God. He has not abandoned creation. Creation is connected to telos. How's it connected? We have this window into this new reality by the resurrection embodied Christ. This proves the character of God. That allows Paul then to be a person, to be a male, to be a missionary, 
to be a beaten person, to be a misunderstood person. It funded his life. It wasn't theological precision or theological purity. It gave him a way of being in the world. And that's what these big ideas are meant to be for us. They're not meant to make us otherworldly. They're actually meant to help us connect to our reality as we presently know it. So let's think about this for a minute. Jesus didn't live in a politically harmonious time. He was part of the deeply persecuted minority. The fights between the Jews and the Romans were way worse than anything we've ever faced in America, thank God. Do you remember Herod massacring Jewish boys? Do you remember that Herod forced the Jews to set up idols in their places of worship? Forced them to go against the deepest aspect of their religion. To a Jew, there was nothing worse than idolatry. And they were forced to set up idols in their places of worship. Inwardly, Jewish parties fought Jewish parties all the time. The Herodians hated the Qumran sect. Qumran sect hated the Herodians. It just went on and on and on. Infighting, outfighting, the Sanhedrin, you've probably heard that word. That was their version of something like a Supreme Court, and they argued over the Sanhedrin the way we argue over the Supreme Court. Who gets to sit there? What's their political, I'm sorry, what's their theological position on things? It was very similar to what we have. The Sadducees, you've seen that name in the New Testament. They were the elite. They were the, the, um, the aristocracy. And of course, when you have an elite, you have a marginalized people. And when you have an elite and a marginalized people, you've got all the typical bitterness and infighting that goes with those who feel left out or those who are trying to control their power. So then the question becomes, how did Jesus deal with all this? And the best we can tell when he was really sort of pressed, tested, he said kind of offhandedly, ah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You know, today you might say vote, you know, pay your taxes, you know, Romans 14, obey those who are in power, you know, something like that. So yeah, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But everybody's attention, you give your heart to God and his kingdom. You do not give your heart, the inner definitive you to this world's powers. You give your heart, mind, commitment, and focus to the kingdom of God. Why, Jesus? Because only God has a true lasting kingdom. All other claims to power are derivative and temporary. This is what Daniel 2 means when Daniel, seeing a vision of the end, says in the time of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms, all those claims to power, and bring them to an end. But the kingdom of God itself will endure forever. Well, now Jesus makes sense. When you pray, pray thy kingdom come. When you live, seek first the kingdom of God. This explains Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's present in me. Come follow me. Rethink all your life and place all your confidence in the reality that the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, Psalm 46 has that famous uh, 
sentence, uh, be still and know that I'm God. And I love the way Eugene gets this in uh, um, the message where he has the psalmist saying, godless nations rant and rave, kings and kingdoms threaten, but, and here's the be still and no part, but attention all, you know, like attention Kmart shoppers, you know, there's a blue light special over on aisle seven, you know, attention all, see the marvels of God, step out of the traffic, not just, whoa, a busy boulevard or a busy highway, but even step out of the internet traffic for a minute. Just step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. That's the way Eugene gets the psalmist. Well, last thing, one of my young priests wrote something um, this week uh, for his church uh, that I thought was really good. We'll end with that. It's brief. So this was after a fairly long article he sent to his church. He, he finished by saying, if you're wondering what it looks like to follow Jesus in our time, you'll always find an answer when we come to the altar. When we break bread and pour wine, we realize our Christian vocation to be the living members of the body of Christ, which is broken and poured out for the life of the world. Our lives, shaped by the cross and determined by the resurrection, shows us how we are sent into the world as instruments of peace, sowing faith, hope, and love as a prophetic witness. Excursus over. So Paul wants us to see that this actually happens, this transformation of ourselves and of the world, similar to like what happens with a seed. Like if I had in my hand the little seed of a tomato plant, I would never know that, unless somebody told me it was a, a tomato plant seed, I would never know just by looking at that, that holy cow, that's going to turn into a tomato plant. But Paul says this is what it's actually like, that the world as we see it today is simply a seed. And our lives as we experience them are, in a sense, I don't mean to say unimportant, I, by simply I mean to say something like uh, essentially, um, fundamentally an aspect of what God is bringing to be. And so in that sense, it's only an analogy in, this, in the way that a seed prefigures a tomato plant or, or prefigures a bottle brush tree or pomegranate tree. Our lives and what God is doing in the world work something like that and that we can't see it right now. But once this world is renewed, our bodies are buried and transformed, then we will be able to see something dramatically different. So what Paul is wanting to do is give us an imagination here for what happens to us and the cosmos that involves transformation on the one hand and continuity on the other. Because he didn't want those super, super, super spiritual dualists saying the body was bad or that heavenly bodies are bad or that seeds and trees are bad. Paul wants to maintain the goodness of creation connected to the fulfilled purposes of God in creation by showing us that the resurrection prefigures the goodness of all this. Did you catch that? Like Jesus is the model. He's the example that this is all good. But then, you know, one of the things about Paul is that he assumed that he would be alive when all this happened. 
At least best we can tell. And so if you wonder about that sentence, uh, and this is one of the points I wanted to make about how this, the resurrection affects our life, is Paul says, we will all not sleep. Well, that means die. And so what he's picturing is, hey, some human beings, he thought his generation, but some human beings are gonna be alive when Jesus returns. And so he says, we're not all gonna die, but we all are going to be changed. We're all gonna be transformed. Some in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Lastly, how does resurrection affect our life? As Travis had us sing already this morning, death has been swallowed by triumphant life. He who lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall she or he live. So nothing that we fear about death is ever going to happen to us. I don't mean to say that the process of dying isn't scary. I don't mean to say that thinking of death isn't scary. Of course it is for the average human being. I just mean to say this, nothing that we think or feel is ever actually going to happen to us. Death is defeated. It's sort of like Paul saying, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, take that death, you know, who's afraid of you now? You've lost both your victory and your sting. You are, and here's what Paul wants to say by that. You are now powerless from terrorizing us. Come on, just think about this. Death can no longer tyrannize human beings. Why? Jesus. This is what happens. You wanna know what happens when you die? Look at Jesus. You're alive in Christ now in a mortal body and you will one day be alive in Christ in a transformed body, whatever that ends up being like. And that's supposed to be such an overarching, confident thought that it breaks the power of sin and death. One of my very favorite illustrations for this, and I think I've said this once, but it was probably years ago, is just picture with me a little girl, let's say maybe four years old, on a winter afternoon, maybe like the one that we'll experience this afternoon, She's, she's uh, lying on the floor, playing with her dolls or something, you know, I don't know, playing with something. And the sun starts going down early as it does now, and she finds her, she falls asleep. Well, her dad comes up, sorry, comes in. So I just I want you to picture this. Her dad comes into the room, finds his child sleeping. Lovingly, gently scoops her up in his arms and places her in bed. She wakes up the next morning with no conscious awareness of how her father transported her from one reality to the next. That is death. It is the beauty of your father taking your life and you know, think of all the Psalms or the prophets with the strength of God's arms and placing you in another reality in a way that you are never conscious of it. It is sheer gift. If for nothing else, the reason the resurrection ought to say central to our apologetics is it's the one thing human beings cannot do. Do whatever we can with the Hubble telescope. We might even go to Mars, but we will never be able to raise the dead. That is all of God. 
And that's why for Paul, this is an anchor to everything. So for Paul, it might go something like this. Because of the fact of the resurrection, Jesus' teaching and way of being in the world can be taken as true. And it can then lead us. This is what the last couple sentences are about, you know, verses 57 and 58. This then can lead to true action, sorry, to fruitful action in the world with this assurance that your work in the world, your embodied life in the world, not just what you get a paycheck for, but your embodied life in the world is never in vain. And again, he would just say, well, how, okay, Paul, that sounds great, but how can we have confidence? And he, again, would just want to point to the resurrection and say 500 people saw this. This is indisputable. This is what is coming. So as we come now to a quiet moment, um, I want to put some words from um, Tom Wright before you. He's commenting in his commentary on, I think, verse 58. I want you to just hear this and um, place this before your mind in an imaginative sort of way. Consider how this could be true for you. God will take our prayer, our art, our love, our writing, our political action, our music, our honesty, our daily work, our pastoral care, our teaching, our whole selves, and weave it into the glorious tapestry of his new creation. Your life, your work is not in vain.